0: section twelve of a history of our own times volume two by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter twenty two palmerston part three the news of the coup d'etat took england by surprise a shock went through the whole country never probably was public opinion more unanimous for the hour at least than in condemnation of the stroke of policy ventured on by louis napoleon and the savage manner in which it was carried to success after a while no doubt a considerable portion of the english public came to look more leniently on what had been done many soon grew accustomed to the sight of the massacres along the boulevards of paris and lost all sense of their horror some disposed of the whole affair after the satisfactory principle so commonly adopted by english people in judging of foreign affairs and assumed that the system introduced by louis napoleon was a very good sort of thing for the french after a while a certain admiration not to say adulation of louis napoleon began to be a kind of faith with many englishmen and the coup d'etat was condoned and even approved by them but there can be no doubt that when the story first came to be told in england the almost universal voice of opinion condemned it as strongly as nearly all men of genuine enlightenment and feeling condemned it then and since the queen was particularly anxious that nothing should be done by the british ambassador to commit us to any approval of what had been done on december fourth the queen wrote to lord john russell from osborne Expressing her desire that Lord Normanby, our ambassador at Paris, should be instructed to remain entirely passive and say no word that might be misconstrued into approval of the action of the prince president. The cabinet met that same day and decided that it was expedient to follow most closely Her Majesty's instructions. But they decided also, and very properly, that there was no reason for Lord Normanby suspending his diplomatic functions lord normanby had in fact applied for instructions on this point next day lord palmerston as foreign secretary wrote to lord normanby informing him that he was to make no change in his diplomatic relations with the french government lord normanby's reply to this despatch created a startling sensation our ambassador wrote to say that when he called on the french minister for foreign affairs to inform him that he had been instructed by her majesty's government not to make any change in his relations with the french government the minister m turgot told him that he had heard two days before from count Waluski, the french ambassador in london that lord palmerston had expressed to him his entire approval of what louis napoleon had done and his conviction that the prince president could not have acted otherwise it would not be easy to exaggerate the sensation produced among lord palmerston's colleagues by this astounding piece of news the queen wrote at once to lord john russell asking him if he knew anything about the approval which the french government pretend to have received declaring that she could not believe in the truth of the assertion as such an approval given by lord palmerston would have been in complete contradiction to the line of strict neutrality and passiveness which the queen had expressed her idea to see followed with regard to the late convulsions at paris lord john russell replied that he had already written to lord palmerston saying that he presumed there was no truth in the report the reply of lord palmerston was delayed for what lord john russell thought an unreasonable length of time at such a crisis but when it came it left no doubt that Lord Palmerston had expressed to Count Waluski his approval of the coup d'etat. Lord Palmerston observed indeed that Waluski had probably given to Monsieur Turgot a somewhat highly-coloured report of what he had said, and that the report had lost nothing in passing from Monsieur Turgot to Lord Normanby. but the substance of the letter was a full admission that Lord Palmerston approved of what had been done and had expressed his approval to Count Waluski the letters of explanation which the foreign minister wrote on the subject whether to lord normanby or to lord john russell were elaborate justifications of the coup d'etat they were in fact exactly such arguments as a minister of louis napoleon might with great propriety address to a foreign court they were full of an undisguised and characteristic contempt for any one who could think otherwise on the subject than as lord palmerston thought in replying to lord john russell the contempt was expressed in a quiet sneer in the letters to lord normanby it was obtrusively and offensively put forward lord john russell in vain endeavoured to fasten palmerston's attention on the fact that the question was not whether the action of louis napoleon was historically justifiable but whether the conduct of the english foreign minister in expressing approval of it without the knowledge and against the judgment of the Queen and his colleagues, was politically justifiable. Lord Palmerston simply returned to his defence of Louis-Napoleon and his assertion that the Prince-President was only anticipating the intrigues of the Orléans family and the plans of the Assembly. Lord Palmerston, indeed, gave a very minute account of a plot among the Orléans princes for a military rising against Louis-Napoleon no evidence of the existence of any such plot was ever discovered louis napoleon never pleaded the existence of such a plot in his own justification it is now we believe universally admitted that lord palmerston was for once the victim of a mere canard but even if there had been an orleanist plot or twenty orleanist plots it never has been part of the duty or the policy of an english government to express approval of anything and everything that a foreign ruler may do to anticipate or put down a plot against him the measures may be unjustifiable in their principle or in their severity the plot may be of insignificant importance utterly inadequate to excuse any extraordinary measures the english government is not in ordinary cases called upon to express any opinion whatever it had in this case deliberately decided that all expression of opinion should be scrupulously avoided lest by any chance the french government should be led to believe that england approved of what had been done lord palmerston endeavoured to draw a distinction between the expressions of a foreign secretary in conversation with an ambassador and a formal declaration of opinion but it is clear that the french ambassador did not understand lord palmerston to be merely indulging in the irresponsible gossip of private life and that lord palmerston never said a word to impress him with the belief that their conversation had that colourless and unmeaning character in any case it was surely a piece of singular indiscretion on the part of a foreign minister to give to the french ambassador even in private conversation an unqualified opinion in favour of a stroke of policy of which the british government as a whole and indeed with the one exception of lord palmerston entirely disapproved to give such an opinion without qualification or explanation was to mislead the french ambassador in the grossest manner and to send him away as in fact he was sent under the impression that the conduct of his chief had the approval of the sovereign and government of england let it be remembered further that the foreign secretary who did this had been again and again rebuked For acting on his own responsibility for saying and doing things which pledged or seemed to pledge the responsibility of the government without any authority that a formal threat of dismissal actually hung over his head in the event of his repeating such indiscretions and we shall be better able to form some idea of the sensation which was created in england by the revelation of lord palmerston's conduct Many of his colleagues had cordially sympathized with his views on the occasion of former indiscretions, and even while admitting that he had been indiscreet, yet acknowledged to themselves that their opinion on the broad question involved was not different from his. But even these drew back from any approval of his conduct in regard to the coup d'etat. The almost universal judgment was that he had gone surprisingly wrong. Not a few finding it impossible to account otherwise for such a proceeding came to the conclusion that he must have been determined somehow to bring about a rupture with his colleagues of the cabinet and had chosen this high-handed assertion of his will as the best means of flinging his defiance in their teeth lord john russell made up his mind he came to the conclusion that he could no longer go on with lord palmerston as a colleague in the foreign office and he signified his decision to Lord Palmerston himself. While I concur, thus Lord Russell wrote, in the foreign policy of which you have been the adviser, and much as I admire the energy and ability with which it has been carried into effect, I cannot but observe that misunderstandings perpetually renewed, violations of prudence and decorum too frequently repeated. Have marred the effects which ought to have followed from a sound policy and able administration. I am therefore most reluctantly compelled to come to the conclusion that the conduct of foreign affairs can no longer be left in your hands with advantage to the country. Rather unfortunately, Lord John Russell endeavoured to soften the blow by offering, if Lord Palmerston should be willing, to recommend him to the Queen to fill the office of Lord Lieutenant of Ireland this was a proposal which we agree with mr evelyn ashley lord palmerston's biographer in regarding as almost comical in its character lord palmerston's whole soul was in foreign affairs he had never affected any particular interest in irish business he cared little even for the home politics of england it was out of the question to suppose that he would consent to bury himself in the viceregal court of dublin and occupy his diplomatic talents in composing disputes for precedence between protestant deans and catholic bishops and in doling out the due proportion of invitations to the various ranks of aspiring traders and shopkeepers and their wives lord palmerston declined the offer with open contempt and indeed it can hardly be supposed for a moment that lord john russell expected he would have seriously entertained it the quarrel was complete Lord Palmerston ceased for the time to be foreign secretary, and his place was taken by Lord Granville. Seldom has a greater sensation been produced by the removal of a minister. The effect which was created all over Europe was probably just what Lord Palmerston himself would have desired. The belief prevailed everywhere that he had been sacrificed to the monarchical and reactionary influences all over the continent the statesmen of europe were under the impression that lord palmerston was put out of office as an evidence that england was about to withdraw from her former attitude of sympathy with the popular movements of the continent lord palmerston himself fell under a delusion which seems marvellous in a man possessed of his clear strong common sense he conceived that he had been sacrificed to reactionary intrigue he wrote to his brother to say that the real ground for his dismissal was a weak truckling to the hostile intrigues of the orleans family austria russia saxony and bavaria and in some degree of the present prussian government all these parties he said found their respective views and systems of policy thwarted by the course pursued by the british government and they thought if they could remove the minister they would change the policy they had for a long time past effectually poisoned the mind of the queen and prince against me and john russell giving way rather encouraged than discountenanced the desire of the queen to remove me from the foreign office so strongly did the idea prevail that an intrigue of foreign diplomatists had overthrown palmerston that the russian ambassador baron bruno took the very ill-advised step of addressing to lord john russell a disclaimer of any participation in such a proceeding the queen made a proper comment on the letter of baron bruno by describing it as very presuming inasmuch as it insinuated the possibility of changes of governments in this country taking place at the instigation of foreign ministers lord palmerston was of course entirely mistaken in supposing that any foreign interference had contributed to his removal from the foreign office the only wonder is how a man so experienced as he could have convinced himself of such a thing. At least it would be a wonder if one did not know that the most experienced author or artist can always persuade himself that a disparaging critique is the result of personal and malignant hostility. But that the feeling of the Queen and the Prince had long been against him can hardly admit of dispute. Prince Albert seems not to have taken any pains to conceal his dislike and distrust of Palmerston. Nearly two years before, when the french ambassador was recalled for a time the prince wrote to lord john russell to say that both the queen and himself were exceedingly sorry to hear of the recall adding we are not surprised however that lord palmerston's mode of doing business should not be borne by the susceptible french government with the same good humour and forbearance as by his colleagues at the moment when lord john russell resolved on getting rid of lord palmerston prince albert wrote to him to say that the sudden termination of your difference with lord palmerston has taken us much by surprise as we were wont to see such differences terminate in his carrying his points and leaving the defence of them to his colleagues and the discredit to the queen it is clear from this letter alone that the court was set against lord palmerston at that time the court was sometimes right where lord palmerston was wrong but the fact that he then knew himself to be an antagonism to the court is of importance both in judging of his career and in estimating the relative strength of forces in the politics of england lord palmerston then was dismissed the meeting of parliament took place on the third of february following eighteen fifty two it would be superfluous to say that the keenest anxiety was felt to know the full reasons of the sudden dismissal to quote the words used by mr roebuck the most marked person in the administration he around whom all the party battles of the administration had been fought whose political existence had been made the political existence of the government itself the person on whose being in office the government rested their existence as a government was dismissed their right hand was cut off their most powerful arm was taken away and at the critical time when it was most needed. The House of Commons was not long left to wait for an explanation. Lord John Russell made a long speech in which he went into the whole history of the differences between Lord Palmerston and his colleagues, and what was more surprising to the House, into a history of the late Foreign Secretary's differences with his sovereign and the threat of dismissal which had so long been hanging over his head. The Prime Minister read to the House the Queen's Memorandum, which we have already quoted lord john russell's speech was a great success lord palmerston's was even in the estimation of his closest friends a failure far different indeed was the effect it produced from the almost magical influence of that wonderful speech on the don pacifico question which had compelled even unconvinced opponents to genuine admiration palmerston seemed to have practically no defence he only went over again the points put by him and the correspondence already noticed, contended that on the whole he had judged rightly of the French crisis, and that he could not help forming an opinion on it, and so forth. Of the Queen's memorandum, he said nothing. He did not even attempt to explain how it came about, that having received so distinct and severe an injunction, he had ventured deliberately to disregard it in a matter of the greatest national importance some of his admirers were of the opinion then and long after that the reading of the memorandum must have come on him by surprise that lord john russell must have sprung a mine upon him and palmerston was taken unfairly and at a disadvantage but it is certain that lord john russell gave notice to his late colleague of his intention to read the memorandum of the queen besides Lord Palmerston was one of the most ready and self-possessed speakers that ever addressed the House of Commons. During the very reading of the memorandum, he could have found time to arrange his ideas and to make out some show of a case for himself. The truth, we believe, is that Lord Palmerston deliberately declined to make any reply to that part of Lord John Russell's speech which disclosed the letter from the Queen. He made up his mind that a dispute between a sovereign and a subject would be unbecoming of both, and he passed over the memorandum in deliberate silence. He doubtless felt convinced that even though such discretion involved him for the moment in seeming defeat, it would in the long run reckon to his credit and his advantage. Lord Darling, better known as Sir Henry Bulwer, was present during the debate and formed an opinion of Palmerston's conduct which seems in every way correct and far-seeing. "'I must say,' Lord Dawling writes, "'that I never admired him so much as at this crisis. He evidently thought he had been ill-treated, but I never heard him make an unfair or irritable remark, nor did he seem in any wise stunned by the blow he had received, or dismayed by the isolated position in which he stood.' I should say that he seemed to consider that he had a quarrel put upon him, which it was his wisest course to close by receiving the fire of his adversary and not returning it. He could not, in fact, have gained a victory against the Premier on the ground which Lord John Russell had chosen for the combat, which would not have been more permanently disadvantageous to him than a defeat. The faults of which he had been accused did not touch his own honour nor that of his country. Let them be admitted, and there was an end of the matter. By and by, an occasion would probably arise in which he might choose an advantageous occasion for giving battle, and he was willing to wait calmly for that occasion. Lord Darling judged accurately so far as his judgment went, but while we agree with him in thinking that Lord Palmerston refrained from returning his adversary's fire for the reasons Lord Darling has given, we are strongly of opinion that other reasons too influenced Palmerston he knew that he was not at that time much liked or trusted by the queen and prince albert he was not sorry that the fact should be made known to the world he thoroughly understood english public opinion and was not above taking advantage of its moods and its prejudices he did not think a statesman would stand any the worse in the general estimation of the english public than because it was known that he was not admired by prince albert But the almost universal opinion of the House of Commons and of the clubs was that Lord Palmerston's career was closed. Palmerston is smashed, was the common saying of the clubs. A night or two after the debate, Lord Darling met Mr. Disraeli on the staircase of the Russian embassy, and Disraeli remarked to him that there was a Palmerston. Lord Palmerston evidently did not think so the letters he wrote to friends immediately after his fall show him as jaunty and full of confidence as ever he was quite satisfied with the way things had gone he waited calmly for what he called a few days afterwards my tit-for-tat with john russell which came about indeed sooner than even he himself could well have expected we have not hesitated to express our opinion that throughout the whole of this particular dispute lord palmerston was in the wrong. He was in the wrong in many, if not most, of the controversies which had preceded it. That is to say, he was wrong in committing England, as he so often did, to measures which had not had the approval of the sovereign or his colleagues. In the memorable dispute which brought matters to a crisis, he seems to us to have been in the wrong not less in what he did than in his manner of doing it yet it ought not to have been difficult for a calm observer even at the time to see that lord palmerston was likely to have the best of the controversy in the end the faults of which he was principally accused were not such as the english people would find it very hard to forgive he was said to be too brusque and high-handed in his dealings with foreign states and ministers but it did not seem to the English people in general as if this was an offence for which his own countrymen were bound to condemn him too severely. There was a general impression that his influence was exercised on behalf of popular movements abroad, and an impression nearly as general that if he had not acted a good deal on his own impulses and of his own authority, he could hardly have served any popular cause so well. The coup d'etat certainly was not popular in England. For a long time it was a subject of general reprehension, but even at that time men who condemned the coup d'etat were not disposed to condemn Lord Palmerston overmuch because, acting as usual on a personal impulse, he had in that instance made a mistake. There was even in his error something dashing, showy, and captivating to the general public. He made the influence of England felt, people said, his chief fault was that he was rather too strong for those around him if any grave crisis came he it was murmured and he alone would be equal to the occasion and would maintain the dignity of england neither in war nor in statesmanship does a man suffer much loss of popularity by occasionally disobeying orders and accomplishing daring feats lord palmerston saw his way clearly at a critical period of his career he saw that at that time there was rightly or wrongly, a certain jealousy of the influence of Prince Albert, and he did not hesitate to take advantage of the fact. He bore his temporary disgrace with well-justified composure. The devil aids him surely, says Sussex, speaking to Raleigh of Leicester and Scots Kenilworth, for all that would sink another ten fathom deep seems but to make him float the more easily. Some rival may have thought thus of Lord Palmerston. And OF SECTION TWELVE